The next hour will inform you on how cybersecurity is one of the most significant threats to our national security, as well as the battle that cybersecurity experts are undergoing every day on your behalf to protect you, your families, and your data. Welcome to Task Force 7 Radio with your host, the president and CEO of Task Force 7 Radio and Task Force 7 Technologies, George Reedus. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 119 of Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm your host, George Reedus, along with my co-host, the Chief Information Security Officer of Siena, Andy Bonello. I want to emphasize that all the friendly expressed in the show are my own and not my president of past employers. I will never disclose any sensitive intelligence that I've been privileged to as a result of my current employment, and I will never knowingly disclose any classified information related to any security clearances I presently hold or have held in the past with the United States government, and nothing I say during this show should be construed as legal or financial advice. Before we get started, I remind our listeners you can go online to the Cybersecurity Hub and read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at their very cool website, www.cshub.com. The Cybersecurity Hub is an online news source for global cybersecurity professionals and business leaders who leverage technology and services to secure their networks. The media professionals at the Cybersecurity Hub are dedicated to providing the latest industry news, thought leadership, and analysis in the cybersecurity space. So again, check out a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news. Go to the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. So, you know, it's a, it's a breath of fresh air when you have someone that's in academia and teaching our kids all about what they need to do when they get out and, and what they do in their profession, especially in cybersecurity, who's also, you know, is highly educated, who's intelligent, who's extremely intelligent, but also has a great deal of real-world experience and can opine on some of the most deliberated cybersecurity organizational issues in the industry, right? So last week, we had Dr. George Antonio on the show. He's the Associate Professor of Cybersecurity Management at Lynn University in Florida. And he was on the show to talk about what the next generation CISO really looks like. And so he was great. It was a fantastic show. I really enjoyed my discussion with him. And by the way, he's great for Lynn University's program, too. They're really lucky to have him down there in beautiful Boca Raton, Florida. I mean, not only do you get to go to college in Boca, it's a beautiful place, right? But you also get a great education from some very qualified professionals, right? So Dr. Uh, Antonio, he came on the show, and he wanted to talk about the changing role of the CISO and what that position might look like in 20 years, and what is driving all the recent changes to the position, which, you know, to me, seems like the role is changing all the time, right? Whether it's the, the CISO position or the CSO position, these, these top security executives in these companies, these roles have just evolved, you know, so dramatically over the years. And he also broke down what he considers to be key attributes of a successful CISO, which is, you know, to a lot of people is really important uh, for them to know, especially if they're aspiring to be a CISO someday in their career. And he discussed what kind of experience he thinks you should have, what kind of education would put you in the best position to succeed, and whether or not soft skills are important in the CISO position. So 
I think this is always one of my favorite discussions. So depending on how strong your soft skills are and how strong your tech skills are, really decides what side of the fence you are on that argument most of the time. So it's always a lot of fun. Uh, And we capped off, you know, this last week's episode by talking about one of the hottest debated issues in the information security industry, I think, at least in my mind. and, And I think a lot of people disagree with this. Should the CISO be a technologist or a business manager? And I just see so many people making this mistake over and over again. Um, and it's just getting, it's getting worse, I think. And, and I'm not going to uh, talk about what we, you know, exactly what the conclusion was or what Dr. Antonio's, uh, I guess, opinion was on this, but it was a great discussion. So if you missed it, please go back uh, to the TF7 library on your favorite social media platform and check it out. Trust me. It will be worth the time. It was a great discussion. That's the assistant professor of cybersecurity at Lynn University, Dr. George Antonio. On last week's episode, that's episode number 118 of Task Force 7 Radio. Well, if you're listening to us live right now on Voice America, or maybe someone just sent you the link to this episode, you might be wondering how you can listen to all the previous Task Force 7 Radio episodes on playback. Just go to our new TF7 Radio site at www.tf7radio.com and hit the episode tab at the top of the homepage, and you can find all the TF7 Radio episodes at your fingertips. You can also search our guest library, which is the most impressive list of some of the most prolific cybersecurity professionals in the world. And of course, we have our news section. You can check out all the latest news. Uh, You can make some comments, talk to some other TF7 Radio listeners. It's always a lot of fun. So check us out, folks. www.tf7radio.com to hear any of our episodes at your convenience. 24-7, 365, anytime, anywhere around the globe. And whatever you do, don't forget to subscribe. We love it when you subscribe. Please subscribe. We love it. So we've got a really cool show for you this evening. Uh, We're going to talk about pen testing and red teaming. And we're going to talk about what that means to people. You know, we're going to do some benchmarking. We're going to talk about some best practices we're going to talk about some industry uh, standards, and uh, it's going to be really a really, really good uh, conversation. I'm really looking forward to it. We're going to have some of the best professionals in the world with us tonight to break it all down in a way so that we can all understand it. Max Deaton, the commercial lead for Context and North American team, and Henry Prince, the senior security consultant for Context, are both going to be with us to unpack what this all means to you and what this means to the security of your organization. So, Max runs Context Commercial Operations in North America and has worked with clients on everything from application security and hybrid cloud security to advanced adversary simulation, incident response, proactive breach preparedness reviews, and resiliency planning. This is all interrelated stuff that has a lot of synergy with uh, you know, getting the whole program together. So he's very knowledgeable about this, and this is going to be a wonderful conversation. Henry Prince... He leads Context's red team capability in in the United States and has a wealth of domain expertise in offensive cybersecurity operations. And we're going to talk about what that means, offensive versus defensive and things like that. He has run red team programs both internally and externally for Fortune 500 companies across a variety of sectors and has experience in OSINT acquisition as well as manual presentation or I'm sorry, penetration testing, physical security assessments and social engineering. So he's got a lot of experience, you know, hands-on, not worrying about, uh, not worrying about computers, not worrying about automation, but actually doing the manual penetration testing himself. 
And of course, social engineering is a huge, huge part of, of what they do. So you know what they say in the industry, right? Pen testing and red teaming is where all the cool kids hang out. And it seems to me that everyone in the cybersecurity business really loves this domain, right? Because it's just a lot of fun to talk about. It's interesting, uh, you know, uh, to see what they actually do and how they do it. It's challenging, right? It's not easy. It changes all the time, you know, depending on what the, th the threat is, the, the, you know, someone's, uh, what, what the threat actors are doing out there and how they're collaborating and changing with each other and what somebody's uh, attack surface is. And it really requires both, I think, a defensive and offensive mindset, right? It's, it's, an, it's an important capability in any organization's cybersecurity arsenal, and so much can be learned from red teaming exercises. So I'm really pumped up about tonight. So here we go. So it's time to welcome to the show the commercial lead for Context North American Security Business, Mr. Max Deaton, and his colleague, Senior Security Consultant for Context, Mr. Henry Prince. Gentlemen, I'm extremely excited to have you both. Welcome to Task Force 7 Radio. Hey, George. How's it going? Hey, so I'm all jacked up that you guys are here. And as always, I like to level set what kind of topics we're going to talk about right at the beginning of the show so everybody sort of has a baseline of what we're going to talk about and has an idea where the conversation is going to go. And I wanted to start out by talking about red teaming. And red teaming can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. I've heard so many different descriptions of what red teaming actually means. In your mind, what does red teaming mean to someone, to one of your clients and, and someone, one of our listeners listening out there right now? Mm. So I guess in my mind, at a high level, red teaming is really just the practice of bringing an adversarial mindset to a problem. Uh, I mean, specifically for, for context, obviously, we're in the cybersecurity business. So the goal of our red teaming engagements is effectively to improve our client's ability to prevent, detect, and respond to sophisticated cyber attacks. Um, so we've done this for you know, many clients over the last 10 to 15 years, and that's across a whole range of different industry sectors and varying different levels of defensive security maturity. But effectively, for us, red teaming is the process of simulating a targeted attack on a business and seeing how our clients prepare, you know, prepare prevent, and detect that. So this is really interesting, right? Because there's so many good things that can come out of red teaming. And if you really do it right, in my experience, you can glean so much information and get so much insight on, on where your gaps are. What are the rules of engagement when you bring this adversarial mindset to a problem? Mm, it's pretty interesting, really. I think effectively this is a risk appetite discussion. So the rules of engagement really do vary across any type of red team. And it's pretty important that we define these really well before we actually start any working. Uh, at one end, we're taking you know, a very risk-averse approach and there's a really tight problem scope and a pretty narrow set of targets. And we'll only use you know, one or maybe two specific vectors to try and tackle that problem. Um, at the other end, there's, uh, you know, starting with just a simple question, uh, and that question is often, is it possible to achieve a goal through any means? Uh, and that's a much broader scope, and that really allows us to push the boundaries of the kind of activities that are acceptable uh, within an engagement or a program. And typically, that indicates that the client that we're working with has a very high risk appetite. I guess one important thing to note at this point, though, is that 
because we are still constrained by the law, as a general rule of thumb, we don't do anything destructive. So things like breaking down doors, uh, denial of service attacks, or anything meant to really disrupt the business, that's, that's probably not something we're going to do. Uh, at the end of the day, we're all on the same team here, so we're all working against criminals. So while we're trying to emulate criminals and sophisticated attackers as closely as possible, there, there is a fine line to be trodden here, and we, and we don't want to tread over that line. Yeah, that, that, that's important, right? So, so it's interesting because I feel like not all red teams are created equal, right? And we always say we want, to, you know, we want our practitioners to be as close to the threat as possible. But what, can you, what can you tell the listeners about how to you know, find the right red team that works for them? Sure. So I think the, the main thing that they need to understand really is the threats that their business faces. Um, so they're not going to be the same for every organization. If you look at, you know, a, a massive financial services organization, they're not going to have the same people targeting them as a small family bank or, uh, you know, an online retail company. They're, they're very different threats. So the main thing I'd suggest is first understand what threats you face and then find a company that is able to align specifically to those threats rather than just trying to pick a one-size-fits-all approach or trying to go for you know, the most sophisticated attacker you can think of. It might not be relevant for you. So figure out what threats you face and do something appropriate to those. What do you, in your experience, what do you see out there? Do people are more, are they, do they give you more room on the red teaming? exercises or are they like really really conservative i mean or is it really somewhere in the middle i mean yeah it's really somewhere in the middle it kind of depends on the organization sometimes the regulatory pressures they face sometimes the internal politics and the structure um, right. a, lo a lot of the time you're getting people saying we want you to provide really objective answers and then when you provide those answers they say yeah yeah we don't really want that we want something else and we want a more curated report so it, it really depends on the client. Um, personally, my, my favorite ones are the ones where they understand that we're trying to help them improve their security. So they're really open to us trying anything and the scope is very open and they just want to work with us. Uh, that's kind of the best approach that I've seen. Yeah, politics and corporate, saying ain't so, right? I mean, <laughs> especially in cybersecurity, it just seems to be getting more political and more political as time goes on. But this brings me to, you know, my next question, and, and that, that is, in your experience, do most organizations really take advantage of red teaming exercises like they should? Hmm. Um, I have to say, there's a real spectrum, uh, but honestly, most of the exercises I've seen do end up providing pretty good value to the organizations that are on the receiving end. Uh, there's obviously always room for improvement and innovation. And I think one area that we've seen more recently is uh, the involvement of the suite board uh, in the process and from start to finish. And that's an area I think that's really important and that organizations should really take advantage of a lot more. And George, as you know, executive engagement is massively important in driving change and also in making sure that security is remaining top of mind across the organization. So that's something I'd like to see a lot more of. Right, right. Let's talk about OSINT for a second. It's something that Andy and I are very familiar with from our, our past lives. And so can you tell our audience what OSINT is and, and how you go about it? Sure. Uh, so OSINT is open source intelligence. 
It's intelligence that is collected from publicly available sources. And there are lots of different types of intelligence out there. Uh, there's SIGINT, which is signals intelligence, where you can spoof or uh, sniff radio signals. Uh, there's HUMINT, where people uh, use other people to gather intelligence. Um, but OSINT is really unique, and there, there are really many ways that we can use OSINT on a red team to uh, help gain a foothold in an organization. So this is interesting because I think a lot of people out there, even though they're in the cyber, unless you're, in the, you know, you're, you're on the intelligence team and you know how the intelligence is, is gathered and aggregated, um, it, it, you probably don't know the difference between clandestine and open source intelligence. How hard is it to procure clandestine sources of intelligence? And, and how much more valuable in, in your mind is it to an organization to have clandestine intelligence as opposed to open source intelligence? You know, that's a really great question. Um, clandestine intelligence sources are more often than not going to be a, a very targeted scope. So what I mean by that is that you generally know what sort of information you're after, and then you come up with a plan to get it. Um, at context, we don't really use clandestine intelligence sources, and especially human intelligence. And that's because it requires actually compromising a real person. And that person, after the engagement, could be fired from the organization after their actions. So, you know, we have, however, worked with our clients to essentially emulate uh, nation-state adversaries that want to procure uh, clandestine intelligence. So we'll look at vectors on how we can extort or harm a high-value target an organization, but that's really as far as we'll take it. Um, in terms of how useful uh, each of these kind of vectors are, I think the open source intelligence is really unique because I can train anybody with internet access to be able to search and analyze this data. And its readability really gives it the potential to be significantly more harmful than clandestine intelligence because clandestine intelligence is such a unique skill that really only nation states and really, really talented attackers uh, can access. How much are you using LinkedIn, social media to, you know, gather your intel to do their targeting? All the time. We use social media for uh, target acquisition to identify high-value targets, to identify groups within an organization, and we'll use this data to inform everything from phishing emails to uh, calling up and sort of making reference to who might have given us authorization to do XYZ. All right, folks, we've got to transition into a commercial break right here, but stick with us. Lots more to come here on this episode of Task Force 7 Radio. So, hey, if you're a social media junkie, don't forget to follow TF7 Radio on your favorite social media platform. Just be sure not to get compromised. Follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, and even Instagram by searching at TF7 Radio, and you'll be connected to the extended TF7 family. For any inquiries regarding sponsoring the show or suggestions for topics or guests, please email me directly at george.redis at tf7radio.com. That's george.redis at tf7, that's with the number 7, radio.com. I want to remind our audience that we're building the world's premier cybersecurity professional network, Task Force 7. I'm really excited about this, folks. Tune in over the next several months for more information on this much-needed and much-waited-for network. We're going to solve some problems together, I promise you. Task Force 7, get in the fight. We're going to pause with some quick messages from our sponsors, and then we'll be right back with our special guests, Contact Cybersecurity Executives Max Deaton and Henry Prince. Whatever you do, don't go away. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio. The voice of cybersecurity.
Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Context Information Security knows that your development and engineering teams move quickly. Security testing should empower them, not slow them down. What you need is a solution that integrates their objectives and supports the bottom line. Getting your product out while protecting your customers and your brand. While traditional penetration testing is a great way to assure your systems after they've been built, it doesn't work for everyone. That's why at Context, we offer continuous security testing to help you build it right the first time. In fast-moving environments, continuous security testing allows your team to focus on the things that matter. Secure, agile development, speed of innovation, and building security into your products and systems from the ground up. Context has been helping organizations tackle the most complex security challenges for more than 20 years. Visit us today at contextis.com to learn more about how we can help you. As CISOs manage known malware attacks, they also contend with the unknown unknowns. With 24-7 Hacker Innovation, where do CISOs place their next security investment bet? Find the answer with Signet. With forums and public and private partnership dinners in Toronto, London, Singapore, Tokyo, and across the U.S., Signet is a mission-focused, purpose-driven global community, advancing the next generation of cybersecurity solutions. As an entrepreneurial ecosystem super connector, Signet brings innovators, top cybersecurity professionals, solution providers, investors, and government executives into a collaborative alliance. Join Signet's global community to empower your organization and the industry to defeat hackers with cybersecurity's next generation of innovation. Learn more at Secure. Security-innovation.org or Google Signet S-I-N-E-T. Email is having an identity crisis. It's just too easy for attackers to spoof trusted brands or even the government. That's why over 80% of email attacks are based on fake identities. The solution is to stop the fakes before they get to the inbox. That's why enterprises use Valley Mail. It's a trusted identity-based email security solution. Find out if your domain can be spoofed and request a complete free phishing analysis at valleymail.com. In today's interconnected world, digital transformation is taking us on a journey towards exciting new ways to work, live, and communicate. In business, staying out in front of the competition means pushing the boundaries of the status quo and exploring the possibilities of the future. However, pushing forward into this fast-changing digital landscape brings a new level of uncertainty and risk that must be measured, understood, and managed. By delivering state-of-the-art cyber risk analytics, X-Analytics is setting the standard to bring business clarity to the complex cyber threats organizations face each and every day. When it comes to understanding your financial exposure to cyber risk, trust what the global cyber insurance industry and Fortune 500 companies trust. Trust X-Analytics to guide you through the uncertainty into cyber risk clarity. For more information about X-Analytics, visit our website today at x-analytics.com. That's x-analytics.com. X-Analytics, setting the standard in the enterprise cyber risk management. 
Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Ritas. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Ritas. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. We're back with our special guest, the commercial lead for Context North American Security Business, Mr. Max Deaton, and his colleague, Senior Security Consultant for Context, Mr. Henry Prince. So, gentlemen, I want to put the red teaming aside for a second. I know we went over it uh, uh, pretty extensively in the first segment, but I want to talk about cyber criminals here. And I want to talk about how does the average cyber criminal use the information gleaned from all these data breaches? Well, when a, you know, a company's database is breached by hackers, um, you know, most average criminals will think about using it for really one of two types of attacks. Uh, the first one is credit card theft. And that's really where you can steal a credit card from a database and just charge as much to it as you possibly can before it gets shut off. Uh, the second one is credential stuffing. Now, hackers can attempt to use the email addresses and the cracked passwords from these breaches and essentially spray them over the top 1,000 or even 1 million sites online. So odds are quite a few people are gonna be using the same password across these different sites and it's gonna give the hacker a lot of access to different platforms. And just to jump in, George, I know I'm personally guilty of this in the past. I, I work in cybersecurity, but I have used the same password for multiple things. This is something that a lot of people do. It's almost impossible to remember all of your different passwords. So that's why things like password managers are really important now. Yeah, so I, I can't stress enough how important it is to have a password manager on your phone. I mean, I don't know, look, I don't know how you could even function online without a password manager. And so in my mind, if you don't have one, you're definitely using the same password over and over again. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I sometimes we sit down at, at, at dinner with a bunch of folks or even at an event or something, we ask, you know, how many people have a have a password manager here, and then the people that don't raise their hands, they're basically asked, hey, you know, are, are you using the same password? And they're like, oh, no, not me. I mean, I'm just, that's, <laughs> no way, no way are they. I mean, there's so many hundreds of um, uh, logins that people use on a daily basis for, I mean, you know, how many email accounts does people have even? Like, people have, you know, six, seven, eight, nine email accounts. It's common. It's common, right? But just like everything else in life, there are all these different levels of sophistication and expertise in what people do, I think. And it, I think the same applies uh, to the cyber criminals and, 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 and hackers and, and things like that and other nefarious folks. How do, how do things differ when we're talking about a really sophisticated hacker? How do things change? Well, so for a sophisticated attacker or a red team, you know, for us, not all databases are equally valuable. What we're really looking for are breaches where that are most likely to have corporate email addresses for registration. Uh, so that means that, you know, aside from the Marriott breach, we're unfortunately dealing with actually quite old databases. Um, 
on average, I, I think it's around seven years old. If you look at like, Adobe Breach was six years old. Uh, Dropbox was seven and a half years. LinkedIn was eight years ago. Last.fm was also eight years. Uh, so for us, when we pull everyone's password in a breach um, that uses you know, company X email address, the real treasure for us isn't necessarily what is that person's password, but it's really how does this person think about their passwords and passwords in general. So we start to ask questions like, well, what are their base words that they use? Is it a family member? Is it a spouse or a child? Uh, is it their favorite sports team or the company name? Uh, how do they think about uppercase or lowercase letters? Do they like to use uppercase at the start of their passwords? Um, what about numbers? Is it ages? Is it years? Uh, do they use a phrase instead of a word? And you know, my personal favorite is what is their favorite special character? Because I can promise you for 90% of people out there in my experience, they use the same special character across these passwords. Yeah, that's pretty interesting, right? So do, do you think when, when the criminals see these data sets, is it, do they actually go through the data to look for corporate addresses as opposed to webmail addresses? Are they more valuable? Corporate email addresses, is, this, is that data more valuable to them than, you know, say a Yahoo account? I don't think it is. Uh, I think that they're really looking to exploit the individual because they're so much less sophisticated than a corporation. Um, for an advanced threat, they're absolutely looking for corporations because this is much more highly targeted. Um, so essentially for, for an advanced threat, once they sort of learn these basic principles that we were uh, talking about before, uh, they can really put together a, a very highly targeted word list. Um, there's a tool that I actually created out there a couple of years ago called Mentalist which uses chains to create these word lists. So essentially you start with a few base words, you can add some uppercase or lowercase modifiers, append number ranges, and you know, of course their special character, that's their favorite. And what we found is that you know, we're not looking to compromise the entire organization's passwords or even 10% of the organization. Really to establish a beachhead, all we need are one to two employees. And for a company that has thousands of people, uh, with these highly targeted word lists, this actually becomes really quite doable. Do you find that a lot of people are using their corporate email addresses to like sign on to Amazon.com and things like that? I mean, people still you do wouldn't that. believe how many people do that. Really? <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we, we see corporate email addresses over, I mean, every personal site you can imagine. Even the <laughs> Ashley Madison breach has corporate email addresses all over it. What? Everybody was freaked out on that one. I remember that. Everyone was all freaked out. <laughs> That's crazy. That's crazy. I can't believe people are still doing that. So, so look, the criminals have all the access to all, these, all this data from all these breaches that you guys were just mentioning. And there's a whole host of them. I mean, dozens and dozens. And now, the, you know, some of the, even just one breach, you know, results in tons and tons of data that they have access to. And now there's, you know, dozens of them. So they have all this data at their fingertips. What do they do with it? Like, how's that play out? It really depends. Um, I think this goes back to the point we were talking about earlier, whereas understanding the threat. So as Henry mentioned, you know, if you're looking at a sophisticated attacker who has a specific objective or a specific organization they're targeting, they're going to be doing a very different thing with that data than say a standard criminal gang who's just trying to extort the average user or is looking at running some sort of scam. So it really depends on, on I guess, the, uh, the motive and the motivation of the attacker and also their sophistication, their capability and who they're targeting. Uh, so it's difficult to answer that without a bit more context, I suppose. 
forgive the pun, sorry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I think a lot of people are trying to figure out, okay, I'm using a password manager. What else can I do to you know, prevent someone from getting into my account? And, um, well, I shouldn't say a lot of people, some people, <laughs> some <laughs> people are actually thinking about it. Right. So what are your thoughts on multi-factor authentication? There's been a lot in the news lately about, uh, multi-factor authentication. Does MFA prevent these types of attacks and what do you recommend? Yeah, it absolutely does. Um, when we are enumerating like a client's external infrastructure on a red team, uh, we absolutely keep an eye out for services that do not require uh, multi-factor authentication. Um, now, there are techniques that you can use to bypass multi-factor, something recently in the news. We have a few that we can't talk about here. Um, but, you know, in my experience, there's a really big difference between the TOTP, the, the time-based one-time passwords, uh, where a user has to actually enter in a code versus the push notifications, where a user can just look at their phone and accept the multi-factor push. Um, on multiple engagements recently, uh, I've actually noticed a surprising number of users will just accept a push notification without question. And, uh, you know, it's partially, I think, because a lot of the push notification services don't really explain what you're authorizing. So if a user's just sitting in a meeting and they get a push notification, they probably think, oh, IT is just doing something in the background or there's some other program running, and they'll just accept it. It's, it's pretty interesting. So if I'm using a password manager and I got MFA activated, the chances are that I'm a lot less likely to get compromised than someone who isn't doing that, right? Absolutely. Right. So, and isn't it like, we, you know, you just mentioned before that there, there's ways to get around MFA, but isn't that only for the most sophisticated hackers or is that actually easy to do? You just know how, you have to know how to do it. No, it is a very sophisticated technique, and it's something that you'd have to research and even perhaps tailor to uh, an organization's systems. Um, at the end of the day, it's, it's really going to be about phishing. I think um, SANS reported last year that 95% of all enterprise breaches start with a phishing email. So I, I think most attackers are really going to, to start with that vector. Right. So I think it seems to be that attack vector is very popular because it must work, right? How, how often is it really successful? I mean, do you guys have numbers on that? I, get, I think that really depends on the organization again. But I think from the past couple of years of red teaming, it, it has very successful as a vector still. Uh, you think that with the technologies you're talking about, you know, increased user awareness, all of the breaches being in the news and public awareness just being as high as it's ever been really for this kind of activity, it's still surprising how much of the time a successful phishing email will go through an email filter or it will go to a person and be clicked on by that person. Yeah, I would say that the majority of our initial access on the network is actually through phishing attack. Wow. So I, 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 you know, I remember back in the day, we used to go and take a bunch of USB drives and just drop them all over the place. <laughs> mm -hmm. That still works. I mean, does that still work? Because, you know, we put it works. Yeah. If you put a little tag on it that says 2019 financials or somebody's name on it, uh, it's almost guaranteed to be plugged in. Yeah. <laughs> we put a file on there that says, you know, executive salary list, you know, and so people would plug it in and they'd be like, oh, I'm definitely clicking on that. You know, so <laughs> they, they would click on it and they would get caught, you know, but, uh, you know, it's, it's crazy. Um, we, we hear a lot about trust. In, in cybersecurity. And a couple of couple shows ago, we, we, we recently had a chat about zero trust and what that, what that means. 
What, what is a trust relationship? Can you define that for us? Well, you know, people think about trust relationships really differently. Um, I would say that, that the vast majority of people in IT think about a trust relationship as a security authorization setting between networks or machines. But, you know, on a red team, we really think about it in a much wider context. So, does, I mean, does any, when I talk about a trust relationship, do I have to have like sensitive information and ex- exchanging critical data to have that defined as a trust relationship? I mean, there's all different levels of, of these relationships, right? Is, is, once we have that sort of connection, um, is that it? Is that, is that we just have a trust relationship and that's as far as security goes, we're, we're defining it as such? No, absolutely not. Um, you know, even outside of being a technical relationship, um, we actually also consider it to be a psychological relationship. Really, it's, it's any connection that the company has to a vendor or a partner or even a piece of software that can be used to exploit trust. So, uh, for example, when we're sending phishing emails, uh, I'm sure everyone knows about the generic, opportunistic, one-size-fits-all phishing email where they you know, hear about some event in the news or an Amazon shopping cart. Um, but we tend to take it up a, a step by making it a little bit more targeted using these trust relationships. Uh, so, for example, if you use AWS for your cloud hosting or Citrix for your remote access, a phishing email that appears to be from one of those services or mentioning those services is so much more likely to be opened and read than just a generic phishing email. So where do you guys find all this data that you use for these exercises? Like, what, what are you looking for? Uh, they can come from a huge variety of places. Um, you know, a lot of companies even talk on their own websites about uh, new partners or deals, and that is a great place to start. Um, on a red team, when we are enumerating subdomains of an organization's infrastructure, we are also looking at uh, what is the AS number, the autonomous system, uh, to determine really where it's being hosted. Uh, we take screenshots of every open HTTP service. Uh, we grab and catalog every software banner for uh, any other service that we see. And, like, for example, if I see a system at, you know, remote.company.com, and it's a Citrix login, and let's say that the AS ID belongs to Verizon Business, that's actually an incredible amount of information about a company's trust relationships. Uh, and there are a number of phishing emails that we can craft with just that info itself. Um, maybe we want to make an email that says that the target needs to uh, log into Citrix to reset their password, or that their Verizon business account is going to be shut off uh, due to a late bill that requires intervention, um, or maybe their Citrix license is going to expire next week. Um, and when we use this information, we try and incorporate other psychological principles. Uh, and the last three examples I just gave, we use uh, urgency. And that's partially because when you're sending out these emails to large groups of people in an organization, uh, really it's only a matter of time before somebody reports it as a phishing email and your whole phishing campaign gets shut down. So we really want users to feel compelled to act as fast as possible. Um, We also try and limit the scope for these opportunistic targeted emails where we can, like we mentioned earlier, go on LinkedIn and pull everybody in the finance department or the IT department and try and make it as relevant as possible to that group. I think one other point here is people post a lot of information on social media in general that is probably not necessary and gives a lot of information about what they're doing their day to day. Uh, So if I just take a generic example, a company is a startup that is in their series C round, they're looking for investment, 
they're posting that on LinkedIn, suddenly that gives you really good context to send something that is very targeted to them and likely to get opened because you can go and talk to them about their Series C investing and start a relationship that way and build some trust. And once you've got to the point where you have this relationship with them built up over time, suddenly it's not just an unknown. You are acting as a, a trusted partner for them. And then you can exploit that trust to do a, a wide variety of different things. You, do you see a difference in awareness between C-level executives, say middle management, and then kind of really junior folks? Like, is there a difference in, in you know, the percentages of, of who fall for, for phishing emails? You know, I'm not sure that it can be broken down by those levels. Um, I usually see the best success with phishing emails with the people that are most busy, the ones who need to make quick decisions, who don't have time to read the whole email, uh. and they just need to get, get it done with. That's or my phishing. excuse from now on. <laughs> I just do so much. I'm so busy. I just kick ass, you know, but that's why I got, I got caught by this fishing. <laughs> you see, they go after the executives uh, assistance a lot. Mm. Yeah. That's a great attack vector for us as well. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I feel like they're like, you know, prime target number one because they have access to so much information. And if you can get a successful uh, phishing attack against an, one of the executive assistants, then you'll, you'll have access to a ton of stuff. But uh, all right, guys, we got to take another short break to hear from our sponsors. But don't go away, folks. We'll be right back with our special guests, Context Cybersecurity Executives Max Deaton and Henry Prince. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Context Information Security knows that your development and engineering teams move quickly. Security testing should empower them, not slow them down. What you need is a solution that integrates their objectives and supports the bottom line. Getting your product out while protecting your customers and your brand. While traditional penetration testing is a great way to assure your systems after they've been built, it doesn't work for everyone. That's why at Context, we offer continuous security testing to help you build it right the first time. In fast-moving environments, continuous security testing allows your team to focus on the things that matter. Secure, agile development, speed of innovation, and building security into your products and systems from the ground up. Context has been helping organizations tackle the most complex security challenges for more than 20 years. Visit us today at contextis.com to learn more about how we can help you. As CISOs manage known malware attacks, they also contend with the unknown unknowns. With 24-7 hacker innovation, where do CISOs place their next security investment bet? Find the answer with Signet. With forums and public and private partnership dinners in Toronto, London, Singapore, Tokyo, and across the U.S., Signet is a mission-focused, purpose-driven global community advancing the next generation of cybersecurity solutions. As an entrepreneurial ecosystem super connector, Signet brings innovators, top cybersecurity professionals, solution providers, investors, and government executives into a collaborative alliance. Join Signet's global community to empower your organization and the industry to defeat hackers with cybersecurity's next generation of innovation. Learn more at security. 
security-innovation.org or Google Synet, S-I-N-E-T. Email is having an identity crisis. It's just too easy for attackers to spoof trusted brands or even the government. That's why over 80% of email attacks are based on fake identities. The solution is to stop the fakes before they get to the inbox. That's why enterprises use Valley Mail. It's a trusted identity-based email security solution. Find out if your domain can be spoofed and request a complete free phishing analysis at valleymail.com. In today's interconnected world, digital transformation is taking us on a journey towards exciting new ways to work, live, and communicate. In business, staying out in front of the competition means pushing the boundaries of the status quo and exploring the possibilities of the future. However, pushing forward into this fast-changing digital landscape brings a new level of uncertainty and risk that must be measured, understood, and managed. By delivering state-of-the-art cyber risk analytics, X-Analytics is setting the standard to bring business clarity to the complex cyber threats organizations face each and every day. When it comes to understanding your financial exposure to cyber risk, trust what the global cyber insurance industry and Fortune 500 companies trust. Trust X-Analytics to guide you through the uncertainty into cyber risk clarity. For more information about X-Analytics, visit our website today at x-analytics.com. That's x-analytics.com. X-Analytics, setting the standard in the enterprise cyber risk management. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Ritas. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Ritas. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. We're back with our special guest, the commercial lead for Context North America's cybersecurity business, Mr. Max Deaton, and his colleague, senior security consultant for Context, Mr. Henry Prince. So, gentlemen, let's kick off this segment by talking about one of the most common cybersecurity attacks, again, and, and that is phishing. And I want to I I drill down a little bit further about you know, what happens in phishing attacks. And I want to talk about uh, some of the most more advanced attacks that people would see and they should be aware of. So what is the most advanced phishing technique that you have seen in your experience? Well, you know, something that we use quite a bit are individually targeted emails. Um, so while it might not be the most technically advanced, it, it certainly does um, use a lot of very personal information and has the highest success rate for us. Uh, a lot of people call this spear phishing. Um, so what you're doing is you're essentially finding out information about a single person using a lot of different information sources. Um, you want to learn about what are their interests, uh, what groups are they affiliated with, uh, what are their professional goals in the future even. And once you figure that out, uh, you can really incentivize someone to open an email or a document uh, now that 
you can kind of create this online persona that matches the goal of what you're trying to extract or have them do. Um, I usually start these, these longer-term relationships by actually asking them for help with something, um, starting with small favors like giving me some advice, and those can slowly turn into big favors. Like uh, I recently used um, the persona of a college graduate uh, who wanted to get more into cybersecurity, and I asked a CISO to review my resume. Uh, which had a uh, was a malicious word document. So really, once you get them hooked into the conversation, you'd be really surprised at how far you can push it. All right, so let's talk a little bit about the process because I don't think a lot of people understand what, what happens after a phishing attack, right? So bad guys launch uh, spear phishing attacks, and once the bad guys have their targets responding to the emails, how do they go in for, for the kill here? What do they do? Well, there are a couple of ways to do that. Um, back in the old days, uh, you know, we would just send an email with a malicious word document attached to it. Um, it's usually going to be a macro with some level of obfuscation built into that. Uh, that could usually pass through the email filtering. Uh, but these days, with multiple filters and with sandboxing, it's becoming much harder to be able to do that. Um, so if I do want to use a malicious word document, I'll usually send the target you know, a link to a page, something that looks like a, a Dropbox link, for example. And then they can download the document. And then rather than contending with email filtering and sandboxing, I really only have to contend with um, HTTPS inspection. So you know, in my experience, you can sort of add to this overall effect and make it more likely that somebody's going to open the document. Um, for example, if you send a document password along with the link, then suddenly the target is expecting some basic security around that document. Uh, so they go to open the Word document and they're greeted with a message, something like, uh, you know, this is a secure document and it can't be loaded until you enable macros. And you put a little security company's logo in there and suddenly that document, rather than feeling untrustworthy, feels much more trustworthy, much more believable. And they know that, okay, there's something on the back end here that requires some sort of decryption. They're not using Microsoft Word, so I'll just go ahead and enable macros because this is a security-conscious person. So is the ultimate goal here is to create a really cool, good phishing email that, that gets somebody? Are there other things that you can accomplish through open-source intelligence in your exercise? Oh, there's so much you can do with open-source intelligence. It's really limitless possibilities. Um, something that we do quite a bit is we actually pull intellectual property. Uh, using OSINT. Uh, we've pulled a lot of sensitive, you know, internal information just by knowing where to look and, uh, you know, really how to make full use of Google search operators, which is an incredible uh, subset of, of operators that most people don't even know about. Um, when I run OSINT training courses, uh, one thing that we talk a lot about is what makes a good, strong selector, and that's really pivotal to a successful search. So you just mentioned the, the, the term selector, and I've heard this term being used a, a few times uh, when we talk about red teaming. What's, what's a selector? So a selector is really a unique identifier, is how you can think about it. And that can be for any entity. That can be for a person or a company. Um, and there, there are two types of selectors. There are soft selectors, and that is really just a keyword, for example, like financial services. And then there are strong selectors, and those are things that are really only applicable to the target. So that could be like an internal host name, or someone's email address, or a file name. And when an analyst is searching the web for uh, open source intelligence, they are constantly updating and building their list of selectors, because the more information you find, the more selectors you're able to pull out, 
And you can use these selectors in various different search engines, and it can make all the difference for finding sensitive data. Well, what kind of sensitive data are you finding? Like, like what, what do you guys find when you're out there doing this? Well, something that uh, we've actually been really successful with recently is finding internal company source code and configuration files. Um, and the files contain credentials and host names and so on. Um, and this is mostly through GitHub. And I, I think the reason for this is because more and more companies are having a hard time uh, finding developers, so they're outsourcing their development work to contractors, uh, especially in other countries. And some of these developers will post the code on their public GitHub pages. Uh, they might want to be collaborating with their teammates, or they might even post it just as a way to kind of self-promote them uh, as a developer. So a lot of the time, these strong selectors will lead us to these developer repos, which at first glance seem sort of benign. Um, however, what most people forget about GitHub is that it allows you to search and view not just the latest code, but every commit in that repo that's taken place. So that means that, let's just say the developer uh, posted their code initially and then sanitized uh, every piece of code, every configuration file. They removed all the credentials. They removed all the sensitive information. We can then go back to those earlier commits and just extract that information. So this is really, uh, you know, source code can provide so much sensitive information that it's not just these credentials, but oh, yeah. it's allow- a nightmare. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it can even allow an attacker to look at an application differently, so they can find vulnerabilities in the code itself that they would have never been able to find just by you know performing dynamic analysis or testing the application directly. Because now they know, for example, how does this file upload actually work? Where are these files being stored? And then they can exploit that. Yeah, I mean, it comes back to again. You, you mentioned third parties, and we're always talking about third party risk. And what are you know what are the top three material risk? that a company has, and man, third party is always coming up. Uh, no matter what exercise you're talking about, no, what, what, no matter what mitigating control, whenever a third party is involved, it seems that things just es- escalate. But, but what are some of, of your favorite sources of internal intelligence when you when you conducting the exercise? Well, I've been really loving VirusTotal in recent years. Um, this is the website that allows users to like upload files or URLs. And then on its back end, it has multiple antivirus engines scan those files, and it tells you, you know, what hits and what doesn't hit. Um, what a lot of people don't realize is that every document, every email, every link that's uploaded to VirusTotal, and that's whether this is uploaded manually or through, uh, you know, some endpoint security tool automatically, um, it's indexed by VirusTotal. I can't believe it. It's fully searchable. <laughs> I mean, that is nuts. I mean, if anybody takes away anything from this this episode, is that right there? I mean, that I, I did. I had no idea. Andy, did you know that? I didn't know. I didn't know that was you know that, that would that would do that. Uh, yeah, it, it's so interesting. Virus told actually explains that this is to like improve security products and share information across services. But you know, for a red team, this is a treasure trove of internal documents. Yeah, I mean, it also signals the value of like the internal research and internal intelligence team and kind of the ability to keep, you know, like I think, I think, you know, especially SOC analysts, right? They're just throwing stuff up there at times, um, trying to work quick and, and crowdsource that intelligence. It's, it's really a problem. So what's the, what's the message the me- is, is the key point here not to use virus total? I mean, I don't want to poo-poo on anybody here or anything, but I mean, that doesn't sound right. I mean, what, what could, pot- that has to be the end message, no? No, VirusTotal absolutely has a place, and they, they do a wonderful job um, comparing different AV engines. Um, but it's just about knowing what you're uploading and understanding that this is searchable by other people. So 
If it is a sensitive internal document, maybe just scan it locally with a couple of different engines that you have. Um, on a recent engagement, for example, we were actually able to use a, uh, a bank's um, interbank uh, transfer request form, uh, which we found on VirusTotal, and we used that to gain code execution on a workstation. And really, it's just because you know the process of this interbank transfer request, the document itself, they were all familiar to this employee, and they didn't think twice about uh, opening it. So VirusTotal is cool as long as you don't have any important shit. Right. You can, <laughs> I mean, that's, that doesn't sound right. I don't know, man. I don't know. I'm going to do some research into this too. And, and maybe we talk, you know, dig a little deeper into this. Cause I don't think a lot of people realize uh, what's going on when they're using these products. But so there's a lot of information out there. There's a lot of information that people need to calculate into their risk equations and, 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 you know, uh, depending on their risk appetite, like you said before, <clears throat> how, how should this affect the way companies run their red teaming exercises? How does the whole risk appetite play into it? Mm. So I think one of the core problems across the industry and just in general at the moment is information overload. Uh, that's certainly something that we've seen and that's kind of going back to Henry's point about people being busy and people um, putting things into the cloud or wherever that just to speed things off their desk effectively. Um, but going back to your point, we've, we've kind of taken a new approach recently to red teaming. Um, so most companies, when they're ready for a full-on red team, it, it can be a lot of moving parts at once uh, and it's kind of a, a complex engagement there's a lot of stakeholder involvement on their side so one of the things that we suggested recently is uh, if you're not as mature as a really big organization that is ready for an end-to-end -end red team one approach you can take is what we call a stop and go red team and effectively what this means is that after each stage of the engagement so open source intelligence gathering, uh, initial access, pivoting, you know, all the core parts of the MitraTAC framework. What we can do is take a pause after each stage and evaluate with the organization the best direction forward. So what that means is we give them the information that we found at each point. Uh, we let them parse that internally, figure out what that means to them and how they'd like the rest of the engagement to proceed. And it really allows companies to take the time to ask the right questions and ultimately get the most bang for the buck from these kinds of engagements. Yeah, just, just to add on to what Max said, um, you know, from, from the red team perspective, this works equally well with purple team engagements where the red team has to interface with the blue team. Uh, I find that after we you know, pause at each one of these steps, we can actually go to the blue team, go to the SOC, and you know, see if they can identify any of our indicators of compromise or IOCs. Um, and if they get it right, then we can adapt our methodologies to more, be more stealthy, or we can be a little bit louder if they haven't got anything. Um, you know, usually if they get stumped, I'll just give them one IOC, and then see if they can come up with the rest of the attack chain. And it becomes a much more uh, interactive learning process. So are there companies out there that actually get more out of a red team exercises as opposed to others? I mean, it's the small companies versus large companies. Is there somebody in a specific sector that benefits from red teaming? Um, what, is your, what is your experience? Sure. So in theory, basically any company could get some really interesting insights from running a red team. But in practice, that, that's not the case. Um, we have a lot of clients that ask us to perform you know, end-to-end -end red teams because I think they've, they've either read it in the news or they've had peers talking about it and that's like the sexy thing to do and what everyone should be doing and it sounds great. But at the end of the day, a lot of the time, the best advice we can give some clients is they should really be building their way up to this. 
And you have to make sure you have the basics in place first, and that will then allow you to get the most benefit once they're ready for that. So when you talked about our various sectors, it's, it's pretty common knowledge that you know, the financial services sector is very highly regulated, and that's where a lot of budget has been spent on this kind of exercise um, because they're the most targeted, uh, or among the most targeted anyway. You just said the basics. And, you know, <laughs> what do you mean by that? I'm pretty sure I know what you mean by that, but I just want to see what you mean by that because I don't think a lot of people are, or a lot of these compromises are people failing to implement the basics. Right? Sure. Yeah. Uh, so for me, that's cyber hygiene. And what I mean by that is things like asset inventories, you know, robust vulnerability management, um, log collection and analysis. So you can actually see what is going on across the business, um, device hardening and configurations. So, you know, patch management, making sure that you're not leaving vulnerabilities on the table and you're covering the low hanging fruit. Um, things like having a regular pen testing program, good security awareness, um, secure coding. And it, as I mentioned earlier, kind of a, a really solid understanding of the relevant threats to the business um, without kind of having this baseline in place first. A red team is probably gonna have a pretty easy time finding various different ways to compromise the business and it won't take them that long. Uh, I think the worst case scenario for the company that's just bought a red team or has just had a red team run is that day one, you've got a compromise. Uh, no one's really getting anything out of that. Uh, so while that might look good for the company that's doing the red team, it basically means they're not getting any value from the exercise. So for me, um, as in most things really, you know, the best buyer is an informed buyer and also a mature buyer. So the best red team engagements that we run is where the client knows what threats they face, they've got a strong defensive security posture, and they want to work collaboratively with, it, collaboratively with us to improve their security program. So they really use us as a resource to bring a different mindset to their work. Um, I think you've probably seen this, George, but it can be quite easy if people are working on the same thing day in and day out with a team uh, for group thing to happen. Uh, they're working on the same problems, and I think, what really captures this mentality is a phrase that I saw used by um, Toby Kohlenberg. He called a red team a sparring partner. And I think that that really hits the nail on the head. Mm. Um, when red teaming goes well, effectively both the blue team and the red team learn a lot from the engagement and both sides end up much better equipped to deal with their day-to-day -day roles and they're set up to succeed. Yeah, I mean, that's a great analogy. And, you know, when you talk about cyber hygiene and a lot of people, when they're patching their networks, they do it based off their inventory. And if you don't have a good asset inventory, and I know it's not exciting to do, and the person that has to does it probably bored out of their mind, probably <laughs> want to gargle Drano every Friday. <laughs> done, right? But I mean, it's still, it's still something that you have to do because if you're, if you're using the asset inventory to, to, to um, conduct your patching exercises and you don't have uh, assets listed on there, well, then you know what happens after that. Gentlemen. Thanks so much for coming on the show. You guys are great. I'm a huge Context fan. I can tell you that. Um, I'm excited about our, our partnership and especially looking long into the future. And I can't wait to have you guys back on the show. Thanks so much. Thanks, Likewise. George. Yeah, thanks, George. All right, folks, it's time to go. But before I do, I want to remind our listeners to visit the Cybersecurity Hub to read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at www.cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at CSHUB.com. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Stay frosty out there.
Thank you for tuning in this week to Task Force 7 Radio. To learn more about Task Force 7 Radio, please visit our website at taskforce7radio.com. Be sure to join your host, George Reedus, again next Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel.